You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this year's Advent sermon series, The Great Gift, we celebrate the faith, hope, and peace that are ours in the foundation of our incarnate Savior. So yes, during Advent, worship we do and worship we must, but we also long to see the day when the Lord Jesus returns. That is the second Advent when Jesus will return to earth from heaven to gather his sheep and free us from this world. So we wait and long for the day when our faith is turned to sight and the mountains tremble at the arrival of our Lord. This is Advent, a time of worship and expectation. So I'll read from John and pray for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light." The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, give me wisdom and guidance. May I get out of the way and your word do its work. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I've taken the opportunities presented to me to preach the word of God to others here at Mountain City Church, I have taken a few pieces of advice from various wise counsels and seen examples and others that have led me to draw many resolutions about delivering the word of God to the people of God and engaging in this form of public worship. One of those resolutions is to, with all the power that the Spirit of God gives me and all the will I can exert, fully believe and be convicted of the truth that God has imparted to me from the Scriptures and communicate without fluff. Meaning I don't want to offer a word or idea a place where it is not needed or beneficial just to fill the space or the air. In every possible aspect of my preparations for sharing the word, I want to meditate on the word and communicate a truth clearly so as to unite us to one another and unite us to Christ. So to put it another way, I want to be continually working out my salvation with fear and trembling, acknowledging that it is God who works in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want to delve into the truths I'm communicating and trust those truths and trust the power of God and share it with my brothers and sisters in Christ in full conviction. Then, armed with that resolution, I want to diagnose a need, perhaps, and how God's word applies to that need, or identify a piece of the majesty of God to worship and open our eyes to his magnificence. 
I want to let the light of the word shine as it was always meant to shine, as it was always meant to be shared. In the revelation that God has given us, the Bible we hold and love is an unfolding of God's good plans and filled with echoes and shouts of his goodness and mercy. Through it, desires are kindled for the Holy One's glory to be manifested. Through it, we feast on the excellencies of the Savior's work. And through it, the Holy Spirit testifies to the ultimate worth of knowing the great God of the burning bush that is not consumed, whose name is Yahweh. The one who is no beginning and no end. And what we know of our Lord, we know as beggars and children who must be fed, who cannot rise kill and eat unless we are spurned on by the Holy Spirit. We are utterly dependent. And this is the need for the body of Christ today, to see God's faithfulness to keep his word as demonstrated in the scriptures and cry out to him for his return. This has been the pattern since the beginning and will continue to be the pattern for God's people until eternity. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, speaks of faith as assurance or confidence of things not yet seen. Faith is the tie that binds. It is what unites us, and it is what those before us who hoped in the Christ to come applied and received blessing and approval from God by, as Hebrews 11, verse 2 tells us. And we know that without faith it is impossible to please God. This is what Hebrews eleven six tells us. And much more that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and even more that he rewards those who seek him. So we have faith. With light there is darkness to shove the light to the forefront, and with faith there is the radical corruption of man that shoves faith to the forefront and puts the most feared and upright king on his knees, sobbing for mercy before the throne of grace, receiving the healing balm of forgiveness and makes the lowly, downtrodden orphans stand in triumph with confidence before that same throne of grace and total gratitude and unending joy for their adoption. It is faith that changes hearts. It is faith that mends the brokenness, and it is faith that grants the privilege of the presence of God. I read from John chapter 1 because the Apostle John opens his gospel with a declaration of the preeminence of Jesus. He is the very word of God. Creation is made through him, and the life he gives is the light of man. Darkness will not overcome this light. This is a promise. And as the nature of the holy God, Yahweh, is perfect and unchanging, this promise for the domain of darkness to never usurp the power of the light is unchanging and will be fulfilled. This is the great and overarching theme of what I uh, want to share with you all today. And that's that darkness has been at work, but the light will overcome, because God is faithful. Coming back to John, although the world, uh, the world was made through Jesus, the word of God, the world um, did not know him. He came to his own people, and they did not receive him. But all those who did receive him and believed in his name were given the right to become children of God. Again, born not of blood or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. This is the good news, the day that the people of God were longing to see. Why were they longing to see it? And what makes faith in the promises of God so crucial? That's the big question. Well, in everything we begin with God. God is the one and only Alpha and Omega, 
the beginning and the end. He dwells in unapproachable light. All glory and honor is his. He is supreme, meaning that he is better, higher, and most deserving of respect and attention. God, who makes our earth his footstool, is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. He is not dependent on us or anything, and yet it is us he chooses to bestow his love upon. For every known attribute that we fallible humans can ascertain, there is an unsearchable and incomprehensible depth to God that we will never understand. Psalm 145, verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Metaphors cannot suffice, and all analogies will fail to encapsulate the greatness and magnificence of our God. He is the creator of all things, uncreated himself, and totally independent in all ways imaginable. He needs nothing, and he contains everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Darkness covered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2. Heavens and earth, which here refers to everything, is beginning. There was nothing before this creation but God alone, dwelling in perfect unity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is triune. That is, three real and distinct persons having the same substance, power, and eternity, and yet each having the whole divine essence without dividing that essence, thus being united as one, a unity of three. The Spirit which is sent forth from the Father and the Son is hovering over the deep, and by the word of God, who Yahweh created the heavens and the earth through, brings forth light. The light is good, as our God says, and it is separated from the darkness and given the day. The darkness is given the night, the first day. Six more days of creation follow. The sea and the skies are ordered. The fertile earth is formed. The lights of the day and night, the fish and the birds, land animals, which include mankind, are all created. And finally, on the seventh day, God rests and enjoys the good creation. Within the creation narrative, there is humanity. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. The only creature made in the very image of uh, of the creator, not the creator, but created after his likeness. This creature, Adam, and following him, Eve, was then placed in the Garden of Eden, a dwelling of man and God, and man was called to tend to it. Brothers and sisters, see what our God calls very good. Again, verse 31. Out of Eden flowed rivers. Inside Eden were plants and trees that were pleasant to the eyes and good for food. But there was one tree, good and ordained by God to exist in their midst. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil was near to Adam and Eve. And God laid down a command before Adam and said, Without stuttering, with clear lines that are not to be crossed, do not eat or you will surely die. All of this is the kingdom of God. God has created a place for creation to dwell and cultivate. He planted a garden for Adam and Eve to tend to. 
And he calls them to dominion over all that were in their midst to keep and cherish and dwell in harmony and love. A people made by God for God. A people made to worship him. This is the kingdom of God. What comes next, still completely known by God, still under his kingdom, under his rule, the serpent enters the picture. Chapter 3, verse 1. A crafty beast, a liar from the beginning, as Jesus said in John 8, 44. He twists the words of God and Adam failing to uphold his headship and representation for all of his descendants, transgressed God's good command. The kingdom of God, the perfect harmony, the blessed union of creature and God destroyed at the hands of an indifferent free agent, Adam. All of the world would soon know pain and childbirth, sweat and toil and work all for nothing and vanity. Death to follow every human, estrangement from God, disunity between humanity, the fall. Seemingly, the kingdom of God has been thwarted. Is all hope lost? No. As I said before, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 speaks of faith as assurance or confidence of things not yet seen. Faith is the tie that binds, but for faith to exist, there must be an object of that faith. God, in a broader sense, is always the object. But for Advent, and particularly my point today, it is the object of the promise of God in light of the radical corruption of man to now follow. This is what makes faith so prominent and drives my message to you from this point forward. It is what unites us and it is what those before us who hoped in the Christ to come applied and received blessing and approval from God by. As I said before, Hebrews 11 verse 2. And here directly after the fall is the first promise. Genesis 3.15, Yahweh says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, I will bring forth a seed to crush you. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush you. What shall we say then of the kingdom of God now? It will be restored. To Adam and Eve, it could come with their seed tomorrow. But what do we find just one chapter later? The arrogance and jealousy of their son Cain. He murders his brother Abel and sends his blood into the earth, and it cries out to God instead of a pleasing aroma of sacrifice as Abel offered. So we see here that the seed of the serpent, the seed of the accuser, the wickedness of Satan will continue and will influence the life to come. This is not good. But God will make it right. Through Cain, who is now under the curse of estrangement from God and alienation from humanity, wanders in the wilderness, fears for his life, though God gives him the grace of protection, takes a wife for himself and has a child who seems to be worse than him, Lamech. Lamech kills another man who seeks to bring harm against him and mocks God's protection of Cain. As you can tell, the generations continue in sin and wicked vengeance. That's Genesis 4, 17 through 24. Adam and Eve, however, conceive and Seth is born, and he himself has descendants, and it is this generation that some begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Many are born, and we come to Noah, 
And we know the story. God looks upon the children of man and is grieved at the continual wickedness of man. And yet Noah, a man of faith and trust in the Lord, out of reverent fear in the word of the Lord, constructed a boat, which we all call an ark, to escape God's creation reversal, the flood. Noah's faith toward God carried Noah and his family through the floodwaters of judgment, just as faith in the great promised seed would carry humanity through the great waters of death. God, being rich in mercy, makes a covenant with Noah wherein all of creation is guaranteed the common grace of God and will never be destroyed by the waters of the flood. The generations continue, and again, the consistently corrupt heart of man is seeking to make their name great instead of the Lord's, and they build a tower in Genesis 11. But God disperses them across the face of the earth. Years pass, and we meet Abraham, an old man advanced in years, who believed God when he was told he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. This faith was counted to him as righteousness. God makes another covenant, this time with Abraham, and in very certain terms makes it clear that an offspring will come forth as promised and a land will be preserved for this family. But great calamity will befall his descendants. 400 years of imprisonment. Slavery. For 400 years, the people of God, now known as Israel, will be sojourners in a land not their own and suffer much affliction. But the Lord will raise them up and free them by his mighty outstretched arm. There is story after story of God's continued grace in giving promise after promise and blessing the faith of the weak and lowly transgressors. And all of these were looking forward forward in faith to a deliverer and a city. A deliverer with a mighty hand and unflinching power and a city that is heavenly and unshakable, but not yet. Moses, who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, but considered the reproach of Christ much better than the treasures of Egypt, stands in faith, though frail, against Pharaoh, and God uses Moses to lead Israel out of the land of Egypt, and they pass through the Red Sea with faith that the waters will not consume them. And it is at this point where God gives his holy law to his people. This law is to point their hearts to him in holy sorrow, to God's perfect character, and remind them of his freeing Israel from bondage in Egypt. In the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, God makes another covenant. And it is within this covenant that the nation of Israel would be set apart, a holy nation to the Lord. Chosen of God, not because of their great size or stature, but because he loves them. In Exodus 19, verse 6, God promises to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They would perform sacrifices of thanksgiving and peace offerings, sacrifices of atonement for their sin, making appeals to God through their sacrifices for spiritual purity and for bodily purity. And all of this should have been done and was meant to be done in faith. For it is God who desires steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's Hosea 6.6. 6. 
But nevertheless, he sets Israel apart for their purity and preservation of the seed to come that was promised in Genesis 3.15. More time and history passes and we meet a young man named Samuel. In 1 Samuel 3.1, we're told that in his time, the word of the Lord was rare and they received no frequent visions. But in time, Samuel would be established as a prophet of the Lord, delivering his word to Israel and striving for the purity of God's kingdom, looking forward to seeing the fulfillment of God's good promises. Sadly, however, Israel did not reciprocate that sentiment and asked Samuel in his old age to appoint for them a king. This displeased Samuel, but much worse, it displeased the Lord. He says in chapter 8, verse 7 of 1 Samuel, that Israel has not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected the Lord God. This is not good. The people of Israel are losing faith in the promises of God and seek for a king. They get one, and he deals violently and disobediently. Shortly after that, King Saul is rejected by God, and a new king is said to be rising up who is a man after God's own heart. His name is David. From God and through David, we receive the 23rd Psalm. And in it, he says this, The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He was a man of great faith and knowledge of God's love. He was brought forth in sin, as Psalm 51, verse 5 says, and yet by God was preserved and not crushed. He stood before a giant named Goliath, a seemingly immovable object, an enemy to the people of God, seeking to enslave the Israelites yet again. But God would not have this. And with faith in the service of God and its higher reward, David came before the giant as a young man, and with a sling and a stone, he felled the great giant and removed his head. He crushed his head. Sounds familiar. The continuing offspring enacts the justice of God, and God makes a covenant yet again. This covenant establishes David's line as a ruling dynasty forever. God makes another promise to raise up a king. This dynasty of David would be built not by David, not by Solomon, David's son, but by God with a high king who is the very son of God. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 19, David is offering a prayer of gratitude for these promises and says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. This is instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. This is instruction for all mankind, meaning that through the establishment of this promise and covenant, we can look back and see the grace and faithfulness of God to David and to man. The big takeaways here from this overview of God's covenants and promises is that with the promise to Adam and Eve, God's promises that a serpent crusher will come through their offspring. He will undo what Adam has done by the influence of the serpent. And in the covenant with Abraham, a land is promised along with the offspring through Abraham. A seed will come forth to reign in the land God promised. And in the covenant at Mount Sinai that God makes with Israel, laws are given 
to the offspring to live set-apart lives in their holy land and shine for all the world to see the greatness of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They are promised to be made a kingdom of holiness and a kingdom of priests, fellowshipping with God as their king. And with David, the covenant is made to bring about a king, a righteous branch who will not deal harshly and according to wickedness, but will deal according to perfect love and righteousness. What we must remember is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. The saints of old continued in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them from afar. Hebrews 11.13. And as the writer says in Hebrews 11.32, time fails me to tell of all the other faith-filled saints of Israel who served and died in faith, seeking for the reordering of the kingdom of God. But sadly, time would also fail to tell of the great corruption of these same saints. What must be said and must be acknowledged is this. Throughout the history of God's people, Israel, mediators of covenants were raised up. They'd been full of faith, looking forward to the promised land and Messiah, but still stained by sin. Sacrifices are made to testify or to satisfy the wrath of God and restore fellowship with Him, but they're made by priests who are themselves contaminated by the sin that comes from Adam. Judges are given to the people to serve and curb the sin that so easily entangles, but the judges cannot save, and everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. The people disregard God and want to be like every other nation and have a king, even though God was already their king. So, kings are given to the people, but the kings are selfish and greedy. Prophets are given to Israel and the kings to drive their hearts to God and ward off sin, but sin still persists, and they kill the prophets. The kingdom of God seemingly continues to fall at the might of sin and the serpent's seed. Again, I ask, is all hope lost? No. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The time is growing closer. The seed is getting nearer. In the Old Testament, a Messiah is predicted, an anointed servant of God who will not depart from the law, who will not be enslaved to sin, and who will redeem to the uttermost. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. A king is coming. A prophet is coming, as Moses prophesied. A high priest who will forever serve perfectly before God, as Hebrews tells us. And most importantly, he will be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the promise coming to fulfillment. This is the seed who will crush the head of the serpent and begin an eternal covenant of peace. This is Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the king and mighty God. The covenant that he inaugurates is not a covenant made with sinful man that shifts to and fro with every wind and wave of passion and doctrine. The covenant is made with the only truly perfect and righteous human to walk the earth, Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus is the better king, 
the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better prophet. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, whose kingdom will have no end. He sits above all rule and authority, and he comes in flesh to dwell with us. God in the flesh, truly God, and truly man. And he comes as a baby. The infinite God becomes an infant. The maker of all becomes man, and the great upholder of the whole universe now must be nursed by his mother. This Jesus is what the wise men come with gifts to worship. This Jesus is what the angels bring glory and praise to, a baby lying in an animal's feeding trough. This Jesus is what Adam and Eve looked forward to. This is what Noah looked forward to, Abraham and Sarah, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. The list goes on and on. I can hear the word of the Lord plainly, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Yahweh performs a miracle through a virgin, bringing forth a perfect and spotless son, in whom there is no deceit. And this is the seed promised in Genesis, foretold in Deuteronomy and Numbers, predicted in the Psalms, the major and minor prophets. He has arrived, bringing with him eternal life that brings light to all men. All the faith of those before us that I covered earlier on is now turned to sight, and as witnesses in the clouds, they see the promises fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, this morning and forevermore, as we consider the unending kindness of the Lord, there are four things we must never forget as we celebrate Advent. Number one, Psalm 145, verse three, the Lord's greatness is unsearchable. Somehow, he can bear with the wayward and their continual denial of him, as he did with Israel. And he can love them unconditionally and offer to them a wonderful savior in the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, and do all of this out of pure and undefiled love. And when they are brought to life by the power of the Spirit, you better believe a whole host of angels in heaven rejoice because he is just that merciful and good. Number two, he being Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. In the words of Jesus, in John 14, verse 8, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As the disciples saw in the transfiguration, complete fullness dwells in him. Isaiah 7, 14, he is God with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will not leave us as orphans. John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He created the world and everything we see and know. He, dwelling in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit, made everything to share his glory and light with us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is 100% without a doubt God. 
We must never forget this, not because we need to argue it, not because the Muslims say that we're wrong, though it is important to give them an answer. We don't delight in the deity of Christ and the integrity of the Trinity for militant purposes. We delight in it because God has revealed it to us and granted us the gift of knowledge and truth. And with that truth, great joy in bringing him honor and glory for his nature. Don't forget that. Number three, do not believe the lie that comes from the devil and from the wickedness of sin in the world that your efforts to purify your worship and devotion to the Lord this holiday season are in vain or overzealous. And what I mean is, a lot will be vying for your heart. Approval of others, getting the greatest gifts, gluttony, you name it, whatever it is. And all these distractions hold fast to this. God has fulfilled the covenants. He set us apart to worship him and be the ambassadors for his kingdom in reconciling fallen man to himself. He's made us a royal priesthood of a holy nation so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into the light. Imitate God and offer mercy to the poor and lost. Deliver the truth of the gospel with hope and joy. Number four. All that God has accomplished is done out of his abundant love for you. In counting others more significant than himself, Jesus, the Son of God, veiled his glory and majesty in human flesh. He walked among us performing great signs and wonders, showing mercy and grace to the world, filled and welling up with compassion for those far off and estranged from God. He provided healing to the suffering and restored fellowship to the outcasts. We are among those who need Jesus. We shouldn't look at the story of Israel with our noses turned up saying it could, never meet, it could never be me. Because it is. We sin and fall short. We strive for things of this world that are not God. But God will restore us. We are among the needy and helpless who need the love that covers a multitude of sin. We are among the sick who need healed of our terminal sin issue. And Jesus is the healer. He is the king and savior, constantly loving and willing to serve. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Have faith in the love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we thank you so much for your beautiful word and what you've given for us as an example, as the Apostle Paul told us. I pray that we would look upon it with great joy and conviction as well, joy that we've been freed from our sin and can live with Jesus and conviction, knowing that we could fall as well. But praise be to God that we can never fall from your grace. Praise be to God that the Holy Spirit will raise us up. Praise be to God that we'll, we will never be taken out of Jesus' hands.
in our temptations to sin and in our falling into sin, I pray that you would remind us of the great rest that comes through Jesus. Help us to be diligent in our worship and joyful in it and help us to pray and long for your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.